Welcome to Punchboard Paradise, a bi-weekly podcast about the world of tabletop gaming and the topics that affect the board game community. In Episode 7, the Punchboarders talk about what we've been playing, answer a question from the mailbag, and review the newest game from Uwe Rosenberg, Newsfjord. Hi, everybody. I'm Clef. And I'm Chad. And I'm Richie. So, guys, you realize that when this episode drops, we will be driving to Columbus, Ohio for Origins. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. You know, actually, that's usually like the next big step in a relationship when you can actually take a trip with somebody. So I think <laughs> I think I think we're taking our relationship to the next level. That's that's what it sounds like, because that's what, 12 hours in a car, Aww. right? Yeah. Plus, yeah. we'll be staying Aww. in the same house for a few days. That's right. Wow. But we each have our own beds, right? I didn't even ask about this. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yes. So we're not. Okay, good. Right, because we're we're staying with Richie's uh, parents when we're there. We're not doing the hotel room. Save save some money that way. More games to buy. uh, Money for games. And we'll get to ha- yeah. we'll get to get some uh, some dirt on Richie, like maybe some Richie baby pictures or stuff like that. Ooh, that's a good call. <laughs> I didn't even good think about call. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I cannot wait, guys. This is I, I I am so looking forward to Origins. I know we had our big Origins preview show last week, and now it's time to get there and see what we got going on and and have a good old yeah, time. I'm pretty excited about it. Be a nice little vacay. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm sure everybody's like, yep, that's great. Let's get on with the podcast. So shall we talk a little bit about what we have been playing lately? Let's do it. All right. Well, I'll start. How's that sound? I am going to talk about a game that I just got to play this last weekend over at my friend Jake's house. He introduced me to this, and it's kind of a, it's a party game, and it's called Decrypto. Have either one of you guys uh, seen or anything about this one? I heard about it. Yeah, I just saw the Watch It Played popped up the other day. Okay. Well, it's it's a little bit um, like a couple of my favorite party games, code names, uh, like everyone. I've played a ton of code names. And then my a game that I talked about a few episodes back uh, called Crosstalker, a couple of my favorite party games. Uh, time's up. I've got a few, but um, this one, Jake told me, hey, this is a really good game and you really got to try this out. So I was kind of excited to play it. Basically, the way that you play this game is every both teams are going to have a secret four words that they only can see. And then you are going to draw a little code at the beginning. You're like whoever the clue giver is, I guess you could say for your team, you're going to draw a little code and it's simply going to have like, you know, like a four, three, one, or a, you know, one, two, three, and you have to put down words that are going to like, for instance, let's say the four words were say princess, giant, um, Olympics, and uh, something else, whatever. You are going to write down words that are going to make your team know which what your code is that you're giving them. So, for instance, you know, for princess, you could say uh, die for you know like Princess Diana, or you could say um, little like for, you know little princess things like that. You you could write a word like that. And then you'll write it down on the sheet and then you'll give that to your team and they have to basically break your code and write your your numbers down for what your code is. 
And then the other team is doing this at the same time. So the first round, it's it's relatively, I don't want to say boring, but you're just kind of getting your team to guess these words. But then after the beginning, after the first round, you're going to actually give the other team what clues those corresponded to. So the other team already knows kind of what uh, your word is kind of uh, like with, like if I, let's say I said little, you know, for princess, they already know that that one goes into that slot. So then the next round, whoever gives clues is also going to be trying to get your team to get this code. And so they might have to use a different word. For instance, maybe they say uh, P, like a P-E-A, because um, you obviously like the P and the princess with the, the mattresses. Hopefully everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, to try to get you, you know, your team to guess. But the other team now is trying to break your code and trying to figure out not necessarily what your words are, but what your the numbers are that correspond to those words. And if you ever miscommunicate with your own team, like your own team doesn't get your clues good enough because they're not, you know, they're they're that bad, then you get a miscommunication token. And if you ever get two of those, you lose. Or you get these other ones where if you ever break the other team's code, you get a code breaker one. And if you ever get two of those, you win. Um, now there's a whole bunch of if like those things happen at the same time, then you kind of go to tiebreakers. And that's when you can try to guess the other team's words. But anyway, so that's basic the, the premise of, of you're trying to kind of do your own clues, but you're also trying to break the other team's clues. And the one thing I'll say about this game that I really liked was it was a lot quicker than, say, like, I love code names, but sometimes we've all been there with code names where you've got one person and they've sitting there for like five minutes trying to figure out a word. And it's like, okay, move on. All right, let's let's do this. Where in this game, it was it was a lot quicker and the game moved a lot faster. And one reason the game moved a lot faster is when you're writing down your co- clues to give to your team. If you finish first before the other team, you flip a little sand timer that's got like about a 30-second sand timer. The other team has that much time to finish off their clues. And if they don't, they don't get any clues. Or they don't, they won't have a clue for that one. Um, or, you know, vice versa. If they finish first, then you're flipped over. So it moved really fast. It was, you know, neat thought process, trying to figure out different words. Anyways, I definitely recommend this game. I thought it was a blast. I had a, a great time with it. Another just really fun atmosphere of a party game. And the one thing I'll say about this one also is I think it kind of almost fits in between code names and uh, crosstalk for me where crosstalk you can have you know 10 people standing around and kind of all play together where this one I think is like in that nice uh, six to eight range you know where you're going to have teams of either three or four on each side I think really works well for that game where code names I guess code names is about in that range too but solid game that uh, yeah so decrypto was the name of that game. And how many people did you say it supports? Uh, you can, many as you want. It's once again one of those things where it's team versus team. So you could play as many as you want. But I, like I said, I think team-wise, probably three to four people on each team is probably your sweet spot. Otherwise, I think you're getting into too many people sitting there trying to figure, you know, working on it. But right. uh, it could go as many as you want. How many yeah. did you play with? Uh, well, we started off as a three-on-three. And then we picked up a couple of people during the game. So I think it ended up being, I think it ended up being a five on four at the end of it, um, which still, like I said, was okay. I, like I said, I think around four is, is around the sweet spot. So that was Decrypto and Chad, tell us something you've been playing. Well, 
I was over at our, our man Bryce's house the other day, and we had just finished a play of Altiplano, and he said to me, hey, you want to play something a little bit weird? And of course, I mean, when Bryce <laughs> says that, uh, you know, Bryce had some pretty weird games. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's play. So he brought out a little game called Battlefold, which is apparently a successor to Fold It. Have you guys ever heard of Fold It? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, no. Good. So, <laughs> so basically, Battlefold is a folding handkerchief game. You are either a warrior or a wizard or an assassin or an archer, something like that. And each character has its own special handkerchief that is a grid of four by four symbols. And so obviously like it's in a square and then you have a board, which is kind of like a checkerboard with your token on it as well. The purpose of the game is to defeat the other players. It is a player elimination game, but as I will tell you a little bit in just a second, it's a little bit more forgiving than a traditional player elimination game. So what happens generally is there's a set of mission cards out on the table. Those mission cards, you flip it, flip one over quickly and it shows a few different symbols on the card. You have to fold your handkerchief such that those symbols end up together on the handkerchief before the other player can do so and then grab the card. So it's definitely a dexterity game. And when you do that, you get to use those symbols that are on the card or on your handkerchief that you folded. So it gives you some flexibility because otherwise you just take a generic action that is it's a, a lesser action and it's kind of native to your character, but definitely not as good. So when you do this, your actions can be either move with, with little boots, their feet icons. They have an attack icon. They have a shield icon, which you can imagine what those things do. And then they have a potion icon, which heals. And I think there's a poison or a trap icon too. So you do have to take damage if you folded the handkerchief such that there's a trap icon that shows up. But you can do all these things and each warrior, magician, etc., has an extra couple symbols or one other action that they're better at. For example, I was the magician and he could heal himself a little bit better. You also, your character when moving across the board attacks in different ways. So my character might be better at attacking in an X pattern, whereas somebody else's character might attack in a cross pattern or a square pattern. So you're moving across the board essentially to eliminate each other. Now, when you do eliminate a player, they turn their player board over to a ghost side and then they can still play and they can still possibly win if they achieve some objectives by moving around the board and fulfilling those instead. But it's much harder. However, people still get to be in the game. So there's, there's an upside to that. It's a really quick game. It was very different. It was interesting. I think Bryce uh, let me win because it, it seems like one of those games where you have to be good at you're going to be good at folding and you're just going to you're just going to easily trump the other player really quickly. So because there is some skill to that and getting used to that handkerchief. But it was definitely an interesting game. The game itself um, is, like I said, a very quick game. It is designed by David Choi and Johan Go, 
and the artist, this Richie will dig this, the artist is Vincent Dutre. Yeah, I was about to say, I was looking this game up while you're talking about it because I wanted to bash it, but once I saw it <laughs> and I, <laughs> of course. And I oh, saw Vincent Dutre, I might actually buy it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Go from bashing to buying. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a really pretty game. It's a very pretty game. So, And like I said, it's just one of those great little oddities to pull out and kind of do. But you kind of want to play this game, I think, with the same person because if you're teaching new people, you're going to have to pull your punches a little bit because it's really hard to figure out the folding at first. Not super hard, but, you know, it, somebody has an advantage if they've done it before. So, like... 15 minutes or I mean, what's, what's a quick, it play says time? 25 to 35, um, on the box, but to me, it, it was quicker than that. I'd say probably 20, you know, and, and certainly when you get it down now, again, we just played two player. I think it supports, it does support two to four. So that's when that ghost variant, like if you get killed, that's when that ghost variant gets more interesting because you don't get eliminated from the game right away. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So interesting. So Richie, how about, uh, how about you? What have you been playing? Well, I got in a play of role player with the Monsters and Minions expansion. And nice. just a, yeah, and just a quick overview of role player. It's just a kind of dice drafting, dice manipulation game where you are creating your basically D&D character. And it's just it kind of always it, it's it's a solid game. I always thought it was a solid game. We've all played it together. And, you know, we were, we were all good with it, but it did feel like it was missing something. So I was excited to see that they were going to be releasing this Monsters and Minions expansion. So in the base game, after you create your character, that's it. You just have the stats you're going after. You're trying to get each attribution role to a certain level, which will give you, which translates into points. And you're trying to match up the color of the dice to, uh, they have these backstory cards but you're just matching up the colors on them. And then that was it. Uh, and with the Monsters and Minion expansion, one of the big things that it adds is that you can actually fight monsters and minions with your character. So I played this with uh, Jessica, my wife. And the really cool thing about it is, one, it, it adds more cards to the market deck, which just give you you know different powers that you can purchase, different traits, different skills that you can purchase that just help you either uh, improve your character overall or give you some type of special power that you can use throughout the game. So it adds more to the market deck. It adds these uh, scroll cards, which are basically one shot items that you purchase from the, uh, from the market. And then it also adds boost dice, which instead of going from one to six, they go from three to eight. So that can help with some of the, some of the attribute rows require you to be like 18 which can be tough to get to if you can't get all sixes and then it also adds minions which you can fight during the game and when you fight these minions you get xp and you can also take them as a trophy if you actually kill them when you when you fight against them you can use this xp for a couple of different things you can turn it in for money throughout the game which is nice because money can get tight in this game and then you can also use it in the final battle, because at the end of the game now, instead of it just being over, you actually get to go fight the final boss. Each boss has a location, an obstacle, and an attack. And these cards are dealt out randomly out of out of a deck of three of each type. And then throughout the game, when you take a minion as a trophy, you get to look at the first one that you get to look at is the location. And when you look at that location, it will give you some type of 
benefit, essentially, that you could qualify for if you have looked at this card. And then you can look at the next one that next minion that you kill, then you can look at the obstacle. And then the last, uh, the third minion that you kill, you can look at the attack. Anyone who has not looked at any of the, or if they, each one that they have not looked at, they, they can't qualify for. And it, it will always give you some type of bonus. So like the, me and Jessica were playing against the vampire and the location one was whoever had the most white dice in their character sheet got a combat die. So it's stuff like that. It just gives you additional combat dice to roll against the, uh, the, the final monster at the end. And if you are able to kill this monster, you'll get points out of it. So I, I went, my strategy in this game was, I just kind of, I, I dabbled in the minions, but I, I kind of played it like I normally do. I kind of went after the market debt. And I, when I got to the final boss, I got slaughtered. I didn't get much out of that. And then Jessica, she went all out on the killing minions, killing monsters and, and everything. So she got the max points out of that. But uh, even with that, we still came pretty close. I only lost by two points. So I like that it added all this stuff, which makes the game a lot more interesting, but still there's balance there. You don't have to go all in on this in order for it to work. So it, it was nice. Um, so we definitely got to get a play of us in because I know you you guys are pretty interested in trying it out. So yeah, definitely. I want to know. Uh, I want to know though. Does it add? Do you feel like it adds a lot more time to it? Because I thought the the time on the original game was for what it was, not something I wanted to go a lot longer, and that's where I balked at the expansion. It doesn't really add that much time. So with the so your options on your turn, you, you'll draft the die. Then when you go to the market phase. You can either buy a card from the market, discard a card from the market. That's all from the base game. And then the third option is to, you can go on a hunt. And that's where you go to kill the minions. And it's a quick a quick die roll. It just depends on the minion that's up. And then that's it. And then you go on to the next round. And then the final monster, everyone can do that simultaneously. Because you you'll you'll know how many combat dice you'll have for that final monster. And then you, you, you all roll it at the same time. And either you're going to die or you'll get some points out of it. So it's just a lucky die roll at that point? I mean, it's still a die roll, yes, but you're working to get those dice. Like, I didn't work to get those dice, so I went into the battle with just two combat dice. And I would have to have rolled two sixes in order to defeat the monster at that point, which is going to be difficult. So throughout the game, you need to be working towards getting enough dice to make it worth it. And then you have X, the XP allows you to hire, they call it mercenaries, it's just hire extra dice. And then you can also get re-rolls out of the XP. So there was ways to mitigate it, in other words. Right, exactly. Okay, good to know. Yeah, so overall, it it, it improves the game, definitely. I, I don't see any reason to play without it. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to give that one a try. All right, so how about we head into the mailbag, guys? Sounds good. Let's do it. All right, so Richie, are you ready to reach into that mailbag? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we got another email uh, from Steve in Dallas, and he said in his email, 
I understand the importance of phones for emergencies, but it's getting ridiculous. From the Instagram pictures to tweeting to likes on Facebook, it's getting out of hand. The worst is having to tell someone it's their turn because their eyes are glued to their phone. I can't stand it anymore. Don't we play board games to get away from technology? What side of the argument do you guys fall on? Uh, so what do you think, Chad, about uh, cell phones at the at the table? Well, for personally for us, I think this is kind of a fine line, right? Because I, I agree. I am not, for the most part, a solo game player. So I play games to play with people. I enjoy the interaction, and that's an important thing. And on the other hand, we have all taken pictures to put on our Punchboard Paradise Instagram account because that's a really nice way to get to interact with people. And so taking the phone out to take pictures sometimes can detract a little bit. But when I do it, I try not to take too much time doing it. But yeah, I definitely think it it can be a distraction. So I think there's a fine line we walk. Certainly, it's always annoying when you have that friend that definitely just never knows when their turn is and looks up and goes, huh, what, oh, what, you know, and then you have to wait for them to look at the board state and decide what they're going to do next and all that kind of stuff. That, that can be frustrating, but that doesn't always even happen just because of a phone. Yeah, I was just about to say, I've seen that happen a lot where it's people walking by the table or, you know, someone outside the game comes and starts talking to a person and then they just kind of forget that they're playing yeah. a game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally would say, say that, you know, if you got to pull your phone out real quick to just check a message or something when it's not your turn, uh, you know, that part doesn't bother me. But if somebody's going to sit there and like almost play another game at the same time on their phone, like some people do, forget that. Then, I mean, that's uh, why are you playing a board game? If you're I've doing seen that? that. And no offense to our listeners that do that, but that does really surprise me. I've, I, I don't, it doesn't happen very often, but with people that I don't know very well, sometimes we'll be playing like, I, I don't know what, what to call it, but maybe like Farmville or something else off to the side. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, what, what's going on? <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I there I I have a couple of people that are like that that they'll they'll sit there and play some other game while they're you know and some of them are good enough that they'll still play the game. It's not like I even have to say, hey, yo, you know, it's your turn or anything. But yeah, they'll be playing that as they're going so along. So if that doesn't interrupt your game, does it bother you? I would say it doesn't bother me if it doesn't interrupt the game. Yeah, if they're on top of taking their turns, I usually don't. It doesn't upset me. Uh, I mean, really, the only time I'll pull out my phone is if we're looking up a rule or if I if I need a player aid, like anachrony. When after you taught me anachrony, I was like, I'm just going to need a player aid to keep track of everything. So <laughs> I just downloaded a player aid onto my phone right. so that I could reference that while we played. Right. Yeah. But that's that's not really being on your phone. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, that's using something for the games. Yeah. But he did say technology in general, but I think you're right. It's more of an issue when it really interrupts the flow of the gameplay. This is that in that case it's supposed to in you know encourage your gameplay at that point. But what Richie if if Steve is asking us and I don't know that he is, but if Steve is asking us, you know, what to do in that situation where it is frustrating, would what what advice would you give him if it becomes an issue for the people or the person that he's playing with? I think first you do the, you know, the passive aggressive, you know, whose turn, whose turn is it? And when you know whose turn it is, but <laughs> I would start there, kind of stare at them a little bit. And then if it, I mean, if it keeps getting out of hand like that and they're really dragging the game down, cause I, that, that is the worst to me is when someone is just like every turn is so quick around the table 
and then you get to that person and they're like, oh, it's it's my turn. And then they take five to ten minutes to take their turn. That mm-hmm. that can kill a game quickly. If it keeps coming up, keeps becoming an issue, I would just say you got to say something to them or just slap the phone out of their hand, one of the two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Probably not that second I, part. I definitely, yeah, I, I definitely was just thinking about the fact that I had a friend who wasn't a big board gamer, so I, I don't blame him. But he definitely was one of those guys that no matter what game we were playing, he was on his phone the entire game, looking up other things. I mean, sometimes I just think he has a short attention span, so that's just what he has to do. But anyways, I don't invite him to play, you know, even ask him to play board games anymore because it got so annoying. So maybe there is a point where it just does get over the top, maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Steve, I I can see what you're saying, you know, and yet... I also understand that, boy, as, as, you know, board game reviewers or whatever you want to call us right now, we all have to still pull our phone out to take those pictures for Instagram. And, you know, that's just part of our thing. So I, I don't know. It's 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 part of the gaming world, I suppose, but it can't be too much of your gaming experience. Yeah. So that that that's the best advice I can give for you, Steve. Uh, it, it, yeah, hopefully that helps you. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's not even just board gaming. It, it, cell phones and tablets in general have just kind of infected most of our lives, you know, nowadays. So curious question for you guys, because this totally doesn't go to board games, but you just said that. When you watch TV, are you on your phones looking at stuff while you're watching TV? I find myself doing that more and more often. It's not a good thing, but it's true. I don't really watch TV. And if I'm watching something, I'm usually watching it on my tablet. So I'm usually not on okay. my phone. Uh, my wife, uh, lover, uh, she cannot just sit there and watch a TV show. She just gets too bored. So she has to do something on her phone while she's watching the TV show. I, I just don't get it. I, I've, I, so I just wondered. That's totally unrelated to the board gaming <laughs> world. That's just something that this is the extra spice that you get from Punchboard Paradise, folks. And Clef is sleeping on the couch tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs> ah, she's not listening. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Steve, thank you for the email. Uh, just stop inviting those people over. All right. Let's go on to Clef's Kickstarter Corner. All right, so Clef's Kickstarter Corner. Yeah, I got nothing. So today we are reviewing News Fjord. Am I saying that right, Chad? You got it. News Fjord, okay. Can't ever be anything easy. All right. So this is from, say the, say his name again for me, Chad. You're, you're much better at it. Uva Rosenberg. Uva. I always want to say Uwe because I think that's how uh, I was first introduced to him. So so say it one more time and I'll never ask again. <laughs> it's Uva. Uva. Well, that's good. You did. That's good. Oh, usually what I love about hey. this is like, usually it's like, you're like, okay, I got it. Okay. Uwe, Uwe Rosenberg. <laughs> no, no, Uva. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uwe. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Uwe. Yep. Uva Rosenberg. All right. 
Well, people mispronounce my name all the time, so I, I, you know, I don't feel too bad. All right. It is a one to five player game. Uh, Worker placement is its main mechanic. Basically, in this game, you're always going to start off with a with the fishing phase where you're going to have a certain number of fish that you're going to gain each round. And the uniqueness of this game is where when you get these fish, the first thing you always have to do is you have to feed your these elder cards. Um, which I'll talk about here in a second, but you're going to feed those first. Second thing you have to do is you're going to give fish to anybody who has your shares. So you have shares in this game that you have. You're going to give, sometimes people are going to buy those shares and they might have those. So you have to give your fish to them. Then finally, you're giving your fish to yourself for your own shares you have. And other people might be giving you uh, fish if you have their shares. And then finally, the last of your fish that you don't have on any of those spots go into a reserve spot. So that's kind of just you do that beginning of each round. Then you go into a normal worker placement type of game. So that's really what it starts then into. You have three workers. You have different worker spots that have certain numbers of workers that can go on each spot. So like I said, there's elders that just give you special actions that you can buy. There are normal spot or spots where you can sell shares that get you money. There are spots that you can take your forests off and clear off spots for buildings. And there's also spots that you can add forests back on because uh, spots that you have left over at the game can kind of be negative points. And finally, the biggest part of the game is building buildings. And there's uh, different sets of buildings you have. You have A buildings and B buildings, which were out on the out on a board that everybody kind of can grab and you put those onto your board and then they can also give you different actions and give you victory points. And then lastly, you have these C buildings. Now the actual rules of the game are going to be, I believe it is round four approximately. Uh, you get these C buildings into your hand and you have a couple of rounds to actually play them that only you have the opportunity to put them out and then after that, they also go out into a general supply so then other people can play them or build them also once they're out on the board. Uh, played over seven rounds, end of the game, person with the most victory points is the winner. So there's basic overview of Newsfjord. All right, so let's let's talk about our parts of the review here. Let's start with art and components. Clef, what did you think about the art and components in this game? Uh, you know... Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> okay. You don't love those coins? I, I, seriously, I mean, I guess that's the best. Uh, yo, boy, I guess I forgot about that since we didn't even use those. The smallest coins ever. I, that $1 coin, I mean, I it's it's smaller than, well, it's much smaller than a dime. I mean, what is it, <laughs> yeah. half the size of a dime? No, it, it looks, I thought it was an accident at first. When I looked at the sheet, I was like, oh, they must have mispunched this or something. But, you know, once I went online and saw that, that's what they look like. I mean, if you breathe too hard, you you might suck up one of those ones and choke on it. So. <laughs> I Terrible. smell a lawsuit. I don't think you can choke on it, but <laughs> it's sucking up. Uh, yeah. But over overall, the art uh, just, I mean, I, I guess I don't want to say I didn't, but just didn't really jump out at me. I didn't think it was amazing. I didn't think, oh, my God, it's terrible. Um, I do remember, I think one of the people looks like Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, there's, there. a Nordic, I, I there's a Nordic Chris that. Hogan or Paul Hogan. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, Paul Hogan, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I thought the components were just, uh, the other components, average at best. Um, they Workers are literally just flat disks, uh, similar to how they are in Lahav. 
So very, you know, obviously I would almost say below average for components, uh, money-wise, worker-wise. It's a pretty the game for today's age of, you know, fancy stuff. Yeah, I would say the, the cover is probably the best part of the artwork. And then once you get inside, it's not not great. Yeah. And then the rest of it's just standard. Yeah, I, I think basically, and he didn't have Clemens Franz do the artwork on this one. This was Patrick Soider, I think, S-O-E-D-E-R. And so it's got a different feel to it. Everybody kind of looks really craggy in weather, though. It's got that, you know, Nordic look to it. But I think <laughs> the uh, I think the problem is the coins. The coins just bring it down for me. Yes, so below average just because of those coins. You could spend like five minutes trying to pick up one of those coins off the table when it's flat because you just can't <laughs> yep. get it. And That's not an exaggeration. Anyway, all right, so that kind of sums up our views on components and artwork. Richie, why don't you talk about gameplay? I think you've gotten the most game plays of, of all of us in, in with this. You've gotten quite a few, so why don't you I start have. us I, I think I I think I looked uh, yesterday, and it was at I played 20 times so far. Yeah. A good chunk of those are solo. I think I, 15 of those, 15 or 14 of those are solo. So overall gameplay, I really enjoyed it. I mean, obviously, I've played it 20 times. It's good type gameplay. It, it There's nothing groundbreaking about it overall especially when you are looking at Rosenberg's other games there's a lot taken uh, all over the place but I would say it plays quickly it's about 20 minutes per person once everyone's pretty comfortable with it I would say it's 15 minutes per person as long as you no one has AP uh, but it it's just really interesting as far as the the building cards that come out will change every game and there's three different decks that you can choose from so the variability on the gameplay is fantastic. Uh, just a solid worker placement game. Um, and you have those, it, I mean, you basically just have three resources that you're managing. Uh, but it, it is, it's good tight gameplay overall. So what would you think about it, Chad? I, I really liked it. It's just, there's a sweet spot in the gameplay. There's almost something to be said, and I don't usually say this, with familiarity with Rosenberg's mechanisms here. It just feels easy to pick up because of the familiarity, yet he does a few different things with it. And so I felt like, yeah, the the gameplay is solid worker placement like you've seen in most of his games. It feels like with the spots and the different things, there's a little bit of tightness that isn't always there in some of his games. It's a, it's a smidge less sandboxy, let's say. But we can we can talk about that a little bit more later. But Clef, you would be a good one to talk to about this because I know you don't love all of Rosenberg's games, but you really love some of them. So maybe how does this gameplay stand up to to those and, you know, your feelings about his his collection of games? Well, first of all, for sure on on Newsford, I I like the gameplay. I think it's got good decisions that are, you know, like for me as a – for a Euro player, I, I feel like I have those tough decisions about, okay, which one am I going to do here? Which way am I going to go here? And I feel like the, the gameplay has enough different options. You know, you're not really pigeonholed. You know, I certainly tried that one game where I, I didn't even try. I didn't build any buildings at all. I just went for for golden ships, and I, I think I lost by like two points or something. So I definitely feel like there's different ways to play the game it's not all kind of a pigeonhole there you know but it's it's for me i mean like you kind of said it kind of feels like a rosenberg game when i played it 
I, I didn't sit there and go, oh, wow, that's a really amazing new mechanism that I've never seen before. It's, it's just, it's a typical Rosenberg type of feel and game to it better than some of, you know, I mean, tons better to me than like a Caverna or Feast for Odin where there's a million and a half decisions. At least, I mean, I don't feel like that for sure. So good. I, I would say good gameplay, not great. That's what I would say okay. about it. Well, guys, how about uh, variability and replayability? We usually touch on this, and we didn't really talk about the fact that the buildings, there are different decks that aren't always used. So, uh, Richie, where are you at on the variability and replayability? I think it's fantastic for this game. It those the three I've played with all three different decks multiple times, and there are unique paths to victory in each one. Because the different types of buildings that you have are like conversion buildings where you can turn wood into gold or fish into wood different things like that then you have like one-time uh, shot buildings which will you know give you elders um, then you have some where at the end of the game if you have a certain amount of a particular resource you're going to get points that way uh, so like Clef was saying there are a lot of different ways that you can go in this game and most of our games the ones that we've played together I mean we're, we were all within one or two points so I know the last time I won by one point going after a completely different strategy than Clef was going after. So I think the, the replayability in this is, is good. The downside on variability is I would like to see more elders. Uh, the elders are a great addition to the game because they give you uh, you know your own worker placement spot on your board. But I, I can't remember how many there are total but there's only a handful of elders and depending on the number of players that you're that you're playing with they're always going to be the same at at the start of the game so that would be i think that's just one downside to it but overall the i'd say the variability and replayability is good what do you think Clef? um i would agree with you i think the variability is is there the, the same thing with the elder thing is you know you start seeing the same elders over and over again but i definitely i think i've played this three times and I felt like it was kind of different each game. And so I, that, you know, and I felt like I kind of started liking it even more as I kind of went along. But anyways, so I feel like the variability is definitely there. Replayability, I will have to see. Um, I'm not, obviously sometimes Rosenberg games are not my hugest cup of tea, so I don't necessarily always want to play them over and over again. But I still will say this. I've played it that now that number of times, and I still feel like I'd like to give it another shot. So that's maybe a good thing for me to say for replayability. I don't know, Chad. What what do you think? Well, like Richie, I I think that of course the elders would be nice to have in an expansion. I think that that would be my first on my wish wish list if we're talking about expansions. And I know in this day and age, everything gets an expansion right away and whatever. But that that is a shortcoming. But the groups of buildings and the way that you can play with them are really interesting. And I played a solo game. I don't play a lot of solo games. And Richie, you don't play a ton of solo games either. I uh, no, I usually don't. Because uh, usually setup is a bear when you're by yourself trying to set up like Caverna. But yeah, this one is so easy to set up. And a lot of times I'll just leave it laid out that I've gotten in quite a few plays of it. Yeah, I, I played last night and it was just a breeze to set up and and mess around with and I there's that campaign 
style that you talked about where you play through a campaign like three times with the different decks, which is really an interesting mm-hmm. idea too, which increases the variability even more that way. And sometimes if the if the buildings don't come out the way you want in the first game, your score may be low, but then maybe you'll be able to make up for it in the second and third game, just depending on how the buildings come out and the difference in the decks. It's it's interesting. So all in all, that that variance in the buildings is what really helps it. And when I think about this game, I think about Agricola and how many different decks there are for Agricola. And this could easily be done with this game, which is which is great. Now, we forgot to talk about this in gameplay, just to backtrack real quick. How do you guys feel about the C cards coming out in round four? Because those are basically mm-hmm. end game, you know, big point scoring cards. Right. That's a so so explain this a little bit and how it comes out in the game because that's important to our to to the review and and to the game itself. From the beginning of the game, the A and B abilities are out. You can build those; those will get replenished as you go. But you don't get to see the C cards until the fourth round. And it's only there's only seven rounds in the game, so I mean the game's basically almost over at that point and some of the requirements to build these seas cards like i had one in the last game where i needed 25 fish to build this card that i pulled into my hand and if i'm not working on that when i get that it 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 does me no good but you know if clef or chad pull up cards and like oh i'm working on that that's great that i mean that's a huge point swing that's a huge point swing and it's just random luck really at that point. Uh, so yeah, it, that is, as far as gameplay goes, a little bit of a downer. We have been using the variant of just, we you get those cards at the beginning of the game and you can't build them till round four, which I think is how it should be to begin with. Yeah, so it's like a, you, you get a couple into your hand and you get to choose some to work on. Whereas in the, in the game that comes in the box, essentially, you you get them into your hand, right? Nobody else sees them at first except you, and you can try to work towards that. And then if you don't build them within a certain round, they go out to the main board and anybody can can purchase those buildings, right? Right. So that's another thing is that you could get stuff that doesn't, that if it doesn't work for you because you haven't had time to look at it and, and build it for very long, then it could you could end up setting it out, and it really helps out somebody else who happened to have that. So right. it just right. felt like uh, a natural fit to get a few cards at the beginning of those Cs and take two and get rid of one or something like that, and then work towards that strategy. Let that kind of guide some things. We we played it both ways, and it's it. I think we're all in agreement that it's certainly more satisfying to play with that that variant or that house rule. Right. Now that's not an official variant, right? That's just uh, something somebody. Not that I know of. A lot of people have our... been talking about it. Okay. For one, um, uh, Paul Paul Grogan on gaming rules, but other people as well. I think Rado maybe and some other people. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah, seems like an official enough variant for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I would like to see like a designer <laughs> diary or something from Rosenberg to see, you know, why you made that choice because it, it doesn't seem like it would be something he, he would normally do. But I mean, maybe it's just because it's a, a quicker game, a little bit lighter, uh, you know, when you compare it to the rest of his games that he just thought maybe that would be, I don't know, interesting or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think it of reasons for that too. But you know, the, actually, yeah. the one thing I did think of is you know how in Agricola he makes you kind of not focus on one thing. You have to spread it out and have 
a couple of each animal and kind of mm. diversify. I was kind of wondering if that was what his focus was with those cards too, kind of make you build your engine with a little bit of everything. It, it doesn't really work very well for those cards, I don't feel like, but kind of make you build your engine with a little bit of everything to see if you can match what you get. So, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. But, yeah. okay, so moving on, uh, one of the last categories we had was uniqueness. I don't think we will say a lot new because we've said it already, but... You know, this being a Rosenberg, it has his his common stamps all over it. Was there anything that you felt that was particularly unique to the game or stood out for you in any way, Richie? Oh, I mean, the elders maybe would be the most unique. The elders in the fishing system are are the most unique because mm-hmm. this game is it's tight, but it's not punishing. Usually in a Rosenberg, you have to feed your people. Where you know this, you have to feed your elders, but. After your elders have three fish on them, you get one fish back and the other two just go away. Like I, th- I think in a in an older Rosenberg game, you know, like Agricola, that that would have been more punishing. Uh, right, they, and they would have taken the all those would fish. Have died in the hallway, <laughs> right. in the nursing home, or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that's the uh, exactly of of his games. I think that's really in, or of this game. I think that's really the only only thing that kind of stands out is that the elders themselves. So what do you think Clef? I'm just going to flat say, no, there's nothing unique about this game. Uh, You know, the elders are just like having some special abilities that you get. Otherwise it's a worker placement game, building buildings, you know, the, the moving the forest off is something he's had in multiple games. Uh, Not to say that it doesn't, you know, have differences of different games, but uniqueness, no, not at all. This is not a ground-breaking game in, in any shape or form. Okay, well, usually this would be where we talk about the rating system. But before we do that, I wanted to throw this question in here because he's kind of a staple of modern board games. And so I kind of thought it would be good for listeners to get an idea of each of our personal proclivities with Rosenberg and our, our personal favorites. So for each of you, Clef, we'll have you start. Where does this fit in with... Your other, the other Rosenberg games, and and then maybe you could give a couple of your personal favorites so that people can kind of see where their taste aligns with which with each of us. Okay, this is honestly going to be one of my favorites of his. Um, maybe of everything I've been saying in this review, it doesn't seem that way, but I, I certainly would put this near the top for me. I'm not a big fan of his. I don't know how you want to call them these you know, 700 different action place spot games, you know, of the um, Cavernas and the the Feast for Odins, you know, those, those games just don't really work for me. But I do like, you know, I certainly like Agricola. I think that's a, a, a great game. I think it's, you know, obviously a, a lot of decision-making and, and tough times, and I, and I like that. But my, honestly, my favorite, and honestly one of my favorite games is Lahav. I love Lahav, and I know some people just hate it because it is, boy, you want to talk about punishing and feeding the people. I mean, it is, you're basically doing one or two actions, and it's feed the people. And it's not feed the people like the same amount. It is just, oh, feed the people five, six, seven. It just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And I just, I really love the decision-making in that game. Yet I feel like there's good decisions. It's never like I have a bad decision. It's kind of like, what is my better decision? But I love Lahav. So I, I definitely think that this one is 
closer to uh, one of his his better ones. And hopefully I answered the question without rambling too much there for you, Jay. <laughs> All right, Richie. <laughs> um, yeah, it, this is also one of my uh, one of my favorites of his. And you know, like we have uh, have already said, there's nothing groundbreaking, uh, especially when you compare it. I mean, when you look at all of his games, you know, back to back, you see a trend. You see, you definitely, you could tell who designed it when you sit down and play this game. Um, but in, in this one, it did not bother me. Um, but as far as the other ones that I like, Caverna, Fields of Arl, I enjoy, Glass Road. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan of the punishing nature of Agricola and Lahav. Uh, Lahav, I, I have, you know, I play that on the app quite a bit. So I, you know, you could get me to play that in real life if it was a three player game. That's another thing with that game. I don't like like playing four players where the number of turns is weird. So yeah, just overall with uh, Rosenberg, I try to stick with the games where, you know, I'm not having to pay back loans and, you know, you know, I have a real job and I've, I've paid back loans in my life. I don't need to do it in a board game. So I, I just stick to his, his lighter, less mean spirited games. Uh, unless you're talking about card games. So he has Babel and um, Bonanza, which I, I do enjoy as well. So uh, what about you, Chad? Uh, well, first of all, I'll say I'm, I'm a big Rosenberg fan. I have a lot of his games. So I, I, definitely, I definitely do like Rosenberg. I think that to talk about where this one sits for me, it's important to talk about the time. So... I have a lot of Rosenbergs, and we just talked about that they're a lot the same. But this one stands out for me because of ease of setup, ease of explanation, and time. It's something that you can get through pretty quickly. So for that reason, it sits atop, you know, a, a big portion of, of the Rosenberg ones. My my favorite, I have to say, my all-time all favorite would still have to be Fields of Arl. That just hits a sweet spot for me. I really like kind of picking the different strategies and, and going forward from there. I've only had a couple plays of Aura at Labora, but that one is fun as well, even though the setup isn't isn't quite as variable. I also really still still really like At the Gates of Loyang. I really like the tightness of a two-player game with that, where you're really fighting to try to move up that Path of Prosperity track and then really maximize all your actions. So those are really some of my favorites. But again, I will say probably the the one that I can point to that I just didn't care for and, and don't feel like I'm missing out by not owning is Feast for Odin. It just didn't hit with me because of the the huge amount of... Weapons? What? Oh. The, the weapons, weapons? Yes, the huge amount those, of spots, those but silly also weapons? the randomness yeah. of the weapons. So the randomness of the weapons and the the cards and the rolling the dice basically so those things although you can mitigate them somewhat those things didn't didn't hit for me but this this game this falls near the top and again i think the playtime has a large part to do with it well what about what about lahav you, you didn't mention I that do, i that do like lahav i just don't feel like i've had enough plays of that to compare it to the other ones unfortunately i've only had two plays of it and i do own it now but you know i want more plays of it to kind of at first uh, when I looked at it from a distance, and this was before I had it, some of the Rosenbergs I have now, I kind of wasn't interested. But when I played it and the way my tastes have changed over time, I, I, I definitely like it and will 
actively seek out more plays. But I just didn't talk about it because I don't feel like I have as much experience with it. So I think it goes without saying, I think you guys both uh, like Rosenberg much more yeah, than me. I think that would yeah, be the case. Yeah, definitely. So, well, let's talk about, I mean, before we, we go to our ratings and our final thoughts, which I think we should give, Richie, could you give us a breakdown, please, of the Punchboard Paradise rating scale? Definitely. So our scale goes from one to six, uh, one being, you know, just trash, throw it away. Uh, and then six being a rare game, Hall of Famer, top contender for our favorite games of all time. So how about uh, Clef? How about you go ahead and give us your rating first? Oh, starting off with me. Okay, well, I am going to give this for me a high three. And it's not that I, I it's not one that I'm going to own. Uh, for one thing, you guys both own it, but it's not one that I'm going to necessarily want to show other people for, for my style. And like, as we just talked, Rosenberg is not as big for me. So when I say a three, I don't necessarily mean it's a bad three. I think it's a very good game. I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy it. It's just average for me. I don't find a lot of uniqueness in it. I don't find a lot of great um, something different that, that makes me really go, wow, that's really cool, but it's solid. I enjoy it. And in fact, as I, if, if you remember the last time we played it, I actually said, you know, I, I really enjoyed that more that, that play than I did the first two. So maybe it's starting to grow on me. Maybe it's one of those, that if I did play it a couple more times, maybe I would like it a little bit better, but for what I've played of it, I'm just going to say it's a th- high three, an average game, but I really do think most people, especially if you like Rosenberg, I think it's going to be definitely higher and uh, but solid, very good game, but a three for me. All right. Well, Richie, what, what, where would you put it? It is, like I said, I've gotten 20 plays of it, so obviously I like it. It's not a six. It's a five for me. And the, the things holding it back, I think overall, are... I wouldn't even say they're holding it back. I mean, every con that I have for the game, there's a fix for, and some of them I've already fixed. I've already replaced the coins with metal coins. Just do that right away, people. Just throw that sheet of coins out and <laughs> just go get some metal coins. The C cards coming out in fourth round, we just deal them out at the beginning of the game. Uh, and the elders, I would just like to see more elders, which that could be fixed through an, an expansion. So it's a high five for me if we see some more I would love to see some more decks, uh, some more of the buildings. But, I mean, overall, this just hits that sweet spot uh, as far as time, setup, and it's just a solid, tight worker placement game. So a high five for me, definitely in my top ten for uh, last year. I don't know where at yet, but I think it would definitely be in my top ten. Just a solid game overall. So uh, with, you know, definitely, you know, a year from now, if they release some of that extra content for this game, I could see it working up to a six and it may be being, you know, my favorite Rosenberg game out there. So how about you, Chad? All right. Well, you kind of said it. I don't have a whole lot to add just because, you know, you kind of said the the cons and and the fixes for those. I did struggle with with where to put this for me. It it was it was tough. Ultimately, though, I think I'm going to settle on a low five. I do think it's a really good game. And I like I said, I think. I think the time of it really plays a big part for me and how long it takes to play and that I can get my Rosenberg fix in a a little bit shorter time, super easy to set up. And I don't play a lot of solo games, but the solo game is really addictive and fun in that way. So that's a big plus for it too. Um, 
I would also I would also say that I think if you like Rosenberg and have a lot of Rosenberg games, this is probably a game worth owning for you because of the playtime, because of the little difference and in, in variances in it. If you're just kind of so-so on him, maybe you want to play it first and just and just see. But I know that this will probably make the top 10 for the year for me. It's just where it'll sit. So I have to give it a great game possible top 10 for the year, which is a five, a low five, but a five. Now, I kind of thought about that and said, well, you know, if something requires a variant, should you knock it down more? But I don't know. I, I If you can find a fix for it, you know, and it, it's an easy fix, then I still want to play it. So that's where it sits. So I think I think that sums it up. There you have it. You've got a three from Clef, a five from Richie, and a five from me. So that is Uwe Rosenberg's Nushfjord. All right. Well, gentlemen, let's move on to the discussion topic. And I kind of wanted to piggyback off this off this game and and talk about variants or house rules in games and before before we get any further I should probably preface this by what we mean with that when we say variant or at least when I say variant I'm talking about something that's a rule or a variant in the game a house rule or a variant in the game that is not included in the first edition game manual when would you say that it's appropriate to implement a variant you know sometimes these designers spend a long time designing games when would you say okay I feel comfortable saying let's just change it we do it this way you know obviously with uh, the Rosenberg game we had heard of the variant before we even implemented it so Richie what, what would you say to this and I, I mean I typically try to stay away from house rules that aren't official you know from the designer But a lot of the times when I will throw them in, it's to save time on the game. So, and I wrote down a couple here. So like Carcassonne, it tells you to draw the tile at the, at the uh, beginning of your turn, which, which makes no sense. Just draw it at the end of your turn and while everyone else is going, you can look and see what you need to do. Or uh, Mombasa, uh, you know, and this is Clef's house rule, where when you put down your cards, you're supposed to put them where they're going to go up into the stacks after the round you know why go through all that trouble of you know creating ap and just dragging out that process where you know let's play our actions and then at the end of the round just put the card where you want to put the card it doesn't seem like it would really change anything other than speeding up the game so that's that's where i look for uh, usually a house rule is to where it, it doesn't change the game itself but it does speed up the game and you know if you have any players that have ap it, you know it makes things easier for them so uh, how about you, Clef? Is there? I, I just stole your Mombasa one, but are there any other ones? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even think about that one, but I, I agree with you. I don't mind things that help speed games up because I don't think it fundamentally changes the game. Uh, Mombasa is still the same game. It just just makes it where you don't have to spend five minutes on AP on trying to figure that out. I, I Maybe it doesn't even take that long, but it's just an easier variant, especially when teaching somebody new. Mm-hmm. It's a much easier way to teach them uh, Mombasa. But, uh, you know, like small little things, I don't mind doing in a game like that. However, to me, if you've got to start trying to fundamentally change rules of the game, then I just sit there and wonder, is the game really even worth playing? I mean, is it, is it, I mean, if, if I'm sitting here having to try to fix a game, 
well, why don't I just go play another game that's just already fixed and already better? So I really try to watch any type of house rule to try to make a game better. Because uh, certainly with, you know, talking about Rosenberg games, you know, we're talking about a variant here with the with the C buildings in, in Newsfjord. And then I've heard of many people doing a variant for Feast for Odin with, uh, you know, I kind of alluded to earlier, those weapons that you just randomly draw where people have put out, I don't know, like you get like three up or something like that that you can pick from, or I've heard you can turn two in for a certain weapon. You know, there, there's variants there. It just It just worries me if you're fundamentally having to change the game from what the designer originally had. Why is, why is that my responsibility to try to do? I don't know. Chad, Chad what, what's your thought? No, I, that's a really good point. I mean, especially in this day and age, there are so many games out there that why take the time to mess around with a game that isn't the way you want it? At the same time, by the same token, it's very interesting because I've, I've talked to people, you know, some, some of my friends that uh, don't live in the same place. We've talked online about it. And it's like, well, you know, once you buy a game, right, it's your game. And whatever makes you have fun with it, if all the players agree to that contract, that social contract around the table, if you agree to changing a game, it's your game, you bought it at that point, then, you know, you can do that. Now, it's hard for me, especially with a Rosenberg game, because one of the great things about a Rosenberg game, I, I feel like, and probably one of the reasons he doesn't stray very far from his style that he does, is he tends to, from what I can tell, really balance his games. Everything is pretty well balanced for the most part, except where you have some of those random elements we talked about. But for the most part, they are. And it makes you think, okay, well, he really has playtested this a lot. I mean, obviously, in Agricola, I think, I can't remember how many playtests he recorded, but he, he did a ton for that. So you kind of think, well, the designer did their due diligence. I'll give it some credence. But in some cases... You know, who who knows why it didn't come up in playtesting, but there are situations where it's it's warranted. So, Clef, you know, why don't you talk about that railroad revolution variant that we we played with? That wasn't in the that wasn't in the first manual, I know, and it became an official variant, I think, because of the designer, right? I believe so. I think that enough people, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Russian railroads, it's it's just a, a work railroad revolution. Game I think that, it is. Uh, Excuse me. Sorry, not yes. Uh, Railroad Revolution, and there was one strategy that was heads and shoulders above the others. That like you almost you had to go with it to have a chance to win in the game. And so enough people complained about that that he made an official variant that just simply made this one track that you have to go up a, a lot more 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 expensive. And it still is still a good strategy and but it's a little bit harder to implement now for that i'm okay with that because it's an official variant like the the guy said yeah basically whether they didn't play test it enough i don't know the exact circumstance but he said yeah this basically this kind of fixes it um so i'm okay with that but i didn't do that until that official variant came out that was not something i did on my own and see i and i, I do like that variant the thing that bothers me is that on the board it still says the you know it's five hundred dollars to advance up to that track, so you have to you know keep reminding people and stuff like that. So sometimes that you know when they do those official variants, 
uh, and it, but the board itself says something completely different that sometimes bothers me. And I, you know, that's maybe just an OCD thing. <laughs> you need to, then you have a, like almost like yeah, a sticker, yeah, sticker covered in sticky notes. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Well, what are, maybe we can name, I, I know that Richie gave an example. Can you name a game that you just won't play without a house rule? Uh, no, okay. I, 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 I honestly, like I said, I am not a big for for fundamentally changing the game. I just am not. That's not what I like in games. And I, shoot, I own enough games that I just feel like if if I got to make a bunch of rules to make it better to play it, I'm just not going to do it. That makes sense. That makes. I sense. don't know, Chad. Do you well, got a game I, like that? I guess that? probably, and we already talked about it, but it would probably be Real Red Revolution for me because it just. I, I don't always enjoy those games where you it, there's one clear strategy and it's a race to do that strategy. That's just not interesting enough for me. Okay. I, I would agree with you on that game, but I guess I consider that to be the rules of the game now that he's basically. So house rule, no. Official variant, yes. I mean, that I will I will always play with okay. that official variant. And teach so how do you feel way. when you get to the back of the rule book and there's like eight or nine different variants in ways to like end the game, play the game. Do you feel that that's kind of like a cop out? Like they just didn't take the time to figure out the the best way to play this game. What's an example? Give me an example. As I'm not... Yeah, Signori does have a lot that? of variants in there. Yeah, like and it's all about rounds. Like there's and, yeah. three or four different ways with rounds. Uh, Anac did. did um, I guess I have a bunch of variants no okay, i thought it had a few variants in the back of the rule book it, it had some, well it has some expansions but no uh no variants i don't even think signore does it have an official yeah. variant yeah it does have like off around yeah, it has like okay. four variants in the back of the rule book yeah i've never played them I, I play that game straight up and love it so i don't even think about it i can't think of any i mean you know certainly there's a lot of games that have you know different modules and stuff in it but i can't think of any game that i personally have different variants that make me want to think about how do I want to play it. Uh, Richie, do you got one that you can think of? Uh, I mean, just the, you know, like Chad said with Signore. Um, I mean, there's like Vikings, yeah. the uh, Michael Kiesling game. Oh, right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't play. I would not play the base game there. And Kiesling and uh, Kramer do this a lot where they'll have a base game. And then when you go to the back of the rule book, they'll have an advanced game. And I always see that as, you know, go go to the back of the rule book. That's that's the game that we wanted to put out, and maybe the publisher mm. wanted them to dumb it down. Uh, so, okay. Vikings, the basic game is just mediocre, almost terrible. But the advanced game, where you have the auction, you have uh, the progression tiles, all that stuff like that, it, it turns into a really interesting game. Uh, that, that's the one that comes to mind. Uh, okay, I'm with you now. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, I know a game here recently that I didn't really enjoy it, but found out afterwards uh, was uh, that it had a variant that was supposed to be the actual way the game was played. Oh, goodness, I can't think of it. It's uh, the Mac Gertz new one. Uh, What's that one called? Transatlantic, yeah, where I was playing with a a variant, uh, kind of a more of a dumbed-down version, I guess, of the game, and the actual version of the game was supposed to be a different way. And I know my uh, my friend Dan Smith. He he said to me, "Hey, no, you've really got to play it with the 
the real way that it was supposed to, and it's a much better game. Uh, I haven't had a chance to do that yet, but that's that's a good example right there of a variant that I bet you definitely would have made the game better. <laughs> that's too bad that you sold but, that one then. <laughs> yeah, I did. I got rid of it because I didn't like it. But I, now, is that more the publisher, though, than gameplay? Like, the publisher's like, this seems too complicated. Let's make it simplified and then you can put your actual variant or the way the game is supposed to be played in the back? I think a lot of times it is. I know like Mystic Veil, the only reason that came out is because the publisher, uh, AEG, won it. They they weren't confident in just releasing that whole system of the clear cards covering up different things, and they made him make a, uh, a more accessible game first, and then that game is going to come out, I think, this year. The, the actual game that he had produced that had that mechanism in it. Hmm. Interesting. Which, I mean, I understand because certainly publishers are looking to make money and most people out there, you know, mass marketing wise, probably don't want something super complicated. Um, so that's, that's interesting that, that that's out there. Well, I think that, kind of sums up our thoughts about variants in games. Richie, could you tell everybody where they can kind of get a hold of us, chat with us, leave us notes, messages, those kinds of things? Definitely. Come on over to Board Game Geek and join our guild, 3227. Uh, definitely check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Punchboard Paradise. We're on Twitter at Punchboarders. And, uh, you know, share our podcast. Stop over to iTunes. Give us a like a rating. Chad's mom did it. You can do it too. So <laughs> Thanks, <Chad's> mom. <laughs> yeah, but definitely uh, we just want to uh, connect with the community and uh, we just love hearing from you guys. Yeah. And remember, if you do hear this episode, well, still at origins uh, and you'd like to talk with us or play a game, let us know. Cause we would love to meet you guys. All right. So next episode, we will have our origins recap. And here it comes. We are going to draft our top games of 2017. Exciting. All right. Well, everybody, have a good day. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Wait, you know, I kind of feel bad about that stuff about Richie's baby pictures and stuff. That probably wasn't like an appropriate response. I actually really want to see like awkward teenage pictures of Richie. I think those would be even better. Like <laughs> like nineties Richie, maybe late eighties Richie. I don't know. I was about to say so. I was a pretty cute baby, so <laughs> Oh boy. All right, oh boy. all right. Well we'll talk about that. Good night, everybody. Yeah.